everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film, and the official podcast media partner of the Dead Center 2022 Film Festival. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we are continuing our special Dead Center 2022 film coverage with an interview featuring Getting It Back, The Samande Story. That's right, we'll be talking with band members Patrick Patterson, Steve CPO, and director Tim McKenzie-Smith about their documentary playing at this year's Dead Center Film Festival. We'll kick things off by introducing today's special guest before we dive into the history that shaped the documentary, and then we'll close out the conversation by learning more about how you can see the film at this year's festival. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the film. So according to the Dead Center website, Getting It Back, the Samande story is described as... In the racially turbulent UK of the early 70s, a group of black musicians came together in South London with a common love of rhythms and a message of peace. Samande, with a dove as their symbol, combined jazz, funk, soul, and Caribbean grooves to form a unique sound. Despite success in the USA, they faced indifference in their native Britain, becoming disillusioned and disbanding. But the music lived on as a new generation of artists imbibed and reworked their pioneering sounds in fresh ways. From Soul to Soul to Della Soul, MC Solar, and the Fugees, the Dove has spread Samande's message far and wide, prompting their return after 40 years. And this is their story. And to cover such an exciting topic, I'm thrilled to welcome a very special guest co-host today, Stuart Hudson, the editor and co-publisher of Edible OKC. Stuart, welcome to the show. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, Stuart, uh, before we get to the, the real stars of today's uh, conversation, I really just wanted to, to quickly get, I mean, as the editor and co-publisher of the Oklahoma Premier Culinary Magazine, what makes today's interview so special for you? Uh, well, you can probably tell by the uh, records uh, above and behind me that this is a little more uh, personal than uh, work-related for me, uh, like a lot of fans. Um, my love for Samande started a couple decades ago when I picked up a copy of De La Soul's album, Three Feet High and Rising, uh, heard the sample of Samande's bra, and immediately uh, went out to purchase the, what was available at the time, which was the reissue of their first album. And then I spent uh, probably the next 15 years uh, searching for original copies of the albums, uh, which I found in all kinds of places, uh, Maryland, Budapest, here in Oklahoma City, uh, so so all around. Um, and their music has been the sound of uh, my mornings uh, for you know an excess of an excess of fifteen years. Uh, so it's an absolute honor to be able to talk uh, with Mr. Patterson, uh, Mr. Scipio, and, and Tim McKenzie Smith about the movie and their their work. Awesome. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. Again, I'm, I'm so excited that I, I could share this experience with you, quite frankly. <laughs> so let's get to the real stars of today's conversation, though. I'm so excited to welcome uh, three different uh, members from the film here uh, and the band. So uh, first up, we have Patrick Patterson from the band's guitar player. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't know much about the operation as such, but I'm happy to be able to participate in this this broadcast and tell the story of Samandi as I know it. And I'm sure Steve will take exactly the same course. Uh, it's lovely, though, to hear um, George speak and to see all that stuff behind him. It's nice to see people who are, you know, appreciative of the music that we've played over all these years and tied into it. Thank you very much, George, for that. And also, Kayla, thank you for the invitation. Pleasure's all mine. Of course, uh, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for you. Um, with that said, though, I'd also want to uh, welcome Steve Cepio, uh, the bass guitarist player. Steve, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Yes, it's great being here. And I'm looking forward to us having this discussion about the 
documentary, something that we're, you know, we, we're very, how can I say, obligated to, uh, to Tim for pursuing that, that course for us because uh, it's, it's the first time that we have had our, our history, the band's history, documented in this way. And uh, we think it's going to be a, a great legacy for the band and for what we've achieved as musicians uh, when we are no longer here. So, yes, we're looking forward to this uh, to this discussion. Well, the honor's all ours, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Um, and, and, of course, the, the filmmaker behind this documentary, um, I'm so excited to welcome Tim McKenzie-Smith, the director. Tim, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Um, great to meet you guys. Thanks for having us. Um, it's uh, always a pleasure talking about Samande. I've spent the last five years talking about Samande, so hopefully I should <laughs> I should should have had enough practice by now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is your time to shine um, and, and really get to share this incredible story with the world. I, I just want to actually start things off with you, Tim. Obviously, Samande is such an important band in the, into the music history. So. You know, why do you think it's so important to preserve this history through the documentary that you made for us? It's so important on, on multiple levels. Firstly, because it's amazing music that, that um, the world needs to hear. Um, and that's always been my main point, is that the world needs to know this band and their music because they touch my life in so many ways. I listen to them even now, every day, I still listen to Samande's music, even having worked with, on it for five years. And, and normally when you do a documentary on anything... You're kind of sick of it by the end of it, <laughs> but but that's not the case with this. You know, I still, I've, whenever I put a playlist on, I always put at least one Samando tune on there, whatever the playlist is. It could be like heavy metal or some kind of really weird old old music of any, you know, some hillbilly rockabilly kind of stuff. I'm going to put a Samando tune on there too because they have to be there present whenever I'm I'm listening to music. Um, it, and and the thing that, that I became aware of when we started making the film, because I came to it just as a fan, I wanted to get the music out, I wanted to hear more about the people that made the music, but the more I came to understand the story, the more I realised that it was a lot more important than that. It was it, There was a lot of importance attached to the experience of, of people who came to the UK looking for better lives and were confronted with multiple issues, um, you know, some some institutional and some, some not. Um, that, that impacted their lives. And I, I felt that the tie-in between the, the, the experience of, of people that came to the UK for a better life and what they experienced mixed in with the, this amazing music, it, it felt like a really important story that needed telling. That makes a ton of sense. When you, as, a, as a filmmaker, uh, what are the challenges for you behind tackling a, score, a story of that scope and with that meaning to such a wide, uh, a wide variety and a depth of, of people? Well, the, the main thing you're trying to do is balance all the elements because, you know, on the one hand, you've got, you have to tell the story of this music because that's why you came to it in the first place. But at the same time, you have to understand and recognize the importance of the context that was behind the music and the experiences that fed into the music itself. You know, the, the music didn't just come, come out of the air. It came from real experiences and real lives. And so that that became really important that, that we we made sure that we didn't just play lip service to that. It had to be a really key part of the film. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Tim, for sharing a little bit more about what brought you to this this really important story. And um, I actually want to turn it back over to Patrick first, and then Steve, feel free to to chime in where you feel appropriate. Um, but the, the history of Samande, it's, it's so rooted in a racially charged era in the UK uh, and, and the world at large, frankly, um, as is uh, you know, discussed in the film. 
I'd love to hear a bit more about your perspective here. How did the, this history influence the sound of the band? Well, I think the music that Semande made was intended when we were making it, not simply to be original, different from the music that was played generally um, in our, you know, in our industry, if you like, in the United Kingdom, but also to speak about what's happening or what was happening to the black community in the time, because we reflected, I think we reflected what was happening within our community. So you hear much of our music had political elements quite apart from the, 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 the you know, the rhythmic things that we were doing and the jazz things that we were doing. We were also trying to tell the story of our lives and, uh, uh, you know, um, convey what was happening to our communities um, generally over the years that we had been there and over the times that we had tried to become part of an industry that we thought was wonderful because the music industry is supposed to be wonderful as you know as wonderful as music is because it's a it's a communicator and uh, a mechanism for bringing people together and establishing things so our journey at that time was about doing all of those things all at once um, and it's quite clear after all these years and being able to see all those people who have enjoyed our music and are still able to tell us that story, that we succeeded on a number of levels, which in itself is really gratifying. Steve, anything you want to add to that? No, I think I think Patrick uh, encapsulated pretty pretty well uh, what was happening at the time. I mean, as young musicians, obviously we started uh, we started with the learning of, uh, learning of our, our various instruments and. Uh, the instruments became the means for us to communicate uh, what we were feeling at the time. Um, even from the very our first beginnings with our experimentation with um, with these various uh, units uh, together, our first band was Meter, uh, and although that was primarily jazz focused, much of the material uh, that we used later in Simandi, had their genesis in meter um, and was just developed uh, when we formed Simandi, uh, that material, we then developed it and uh, it became much more focused uh, within the Simandi, the Simandi context. Uh, so yes, um, I, I, I echo very much what Patrick has said about uh, the, the, the music and uh, Simandi and other musical units that we've played with at the time, because we also played with Ginger Johnson, uh, which African drummers, which was also kind of, you know, along the whole thing about ethnicity and, and the communication of, of what we were feeling. So, um, yes, those, those, those uh, units, the vehicles, they provided a vehicle for us to communicate uh, what we were doing in our various communities. And that kind of brings up another question. You know, we think of all of us as kind of a composition of all of our different life experiences. And at that time, 60s through the early 70s, a lot of who you were was formed by your experience in Brixton and in London as a whole. How did, how did your relationship kind of change over time as you engaged in the music business, but especially as 
you know, uh, thinking about it in, uh, in light of where Brixton is today, uh, where that area is today, you know, it's constantly changing. How did your relationship with the city, your surroundings, the cultural, political elements, how has that changed or how did that change as, as time went on and the city changed? I'm not sure that there was that much movement in those things. And as black people, you know, we, we were very much into our community. And I'm, I, I don't remember as a younger man uh, having a breadth of experience that was, apart from music that was, that was beyond, you know, uh, what I was doing within my community. I think one, one of the important things that uh, uh, I, I hope comes across in the film is the idea that while life went on in the general community, we made life in our own community. My music went on elsewhere with the limited access that we had. We made music in the areas that we couldn't make music. I have to understand that in the music business, and in my own view, this has not changed greatly, but in the music business, there was very limited access for what black musicians um, in the United Kingdom um, were doing. I often say and it might not be me who coined it, but uh, the United Kingdom had little time for black music and less time for black musicians. So what we did was to create our own thing and promote our own thing. And we were fortunate in the sense, in particularly two things. Firstly, meeting John Schroeder, who loved the music, loved the band, and was committed to the project in a way that is rare in the music industry. And secondly, John Schroeder being the conduit to our success in America, pursuing the band, you know, and its music in the way that he did, and, and his in, ambition to, to, to spread the music abroad. He got us, in, you know, in with Chess Janus, and we made three fabulous albums with him. In fact, uh, we made four with him just before he passed away. John is so important in our lives, it is important for me to uh, make it known how, how, you know, what the impact was of our uh, meeting him. But I don't know that in terms of um, interaction community-wise, I don't think that that, you know, I can talk so much about changes in that sense. Um, we were focused on our own and what we were doing within our own. And if it was able to seep out into the wider community, then great. It did eventually, of course. And one of the things that you know you mentioned is the heart, the hardships that came along with that, the struggles. You talk about that obviously in the documentary, but your music has as a has a lightness to it. It has a positivity to it. It has it brings it carries with it so much joy. What were the in the in light of the struggle that was occurring? What were the factors or the elements that that brought that joy to you that you translated into the music? Well, I, I think the joy is also comes out of our, our Caribbean heritage. I mean, if you listen to Caribbean music, Calypso and so on, there's a joyous element, a joyous aspect to the music. So even within sending a message, the message was set, is sent in a context of, of, um, of, of how can I say, uh, enjoyment of, you know, um, not just you don't want to be, sending a message that's, that's going to be depressing people when they hear it, you know. So it's, it's, there's always this joyful element, even though there's the political message to it. 
Uh, but coming back to what Patrick was saying about the, you know, recognition of black music in the U- UK at the time, they did recognize black music, but not their own. <laughs> that was the problem. You know, they were prepared to recognize the black mus- uh, black musicians from the U.S. coming over, you know, and uh, but but not their own uh, uh, in that way. And it was a struggle, not just for us. You know, there, there were some great bands around the time that were struggling, trying to get recognition, trying to get recording contracts and whatever, you know. Uh, we were fortunate that we met John and John had that confidence and that faith in the band uh, that he was prepared to put his money uh, behind, uh, behind what, he, what he felt. And it, it worked out in the way that it did. And now, um, yes, we had the hiatus between the success in the 70s in the States and the 40-year the hiatus to where we are now in terms of it, you know, generating this new interest. Um, so, yes, um, very much we, we, we have a whole lot to join. And going back to the community thing as well, one thing that's, that I'm finding very strange now is the gentrification, the kind of gentrification that's going on with those communities. You know, so like black people are being pushed out even more um, from from London. They're being pushed to the peripheral sides of, of London because those those places are now uh, being uh, gentrified in such a way that the housing and 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 the uh, the developments that's going on there are becoming really uh, unaffordable for you know for average working working people. I lived in uh, on Denmark Hill uh, for in the early uh, early part of uh, the aughts, uh, the 2000s, and then going back a couple of years ago to see the, as you mentioned, the really intense gentrification that's happened just yeah. in that period. I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine what uh, that Brixton Denmark Hill area, what that transformation must have looked like over 50 years. Well, things have changed substantially. <laughs> well, Corsair Road, where you guys rehearsed, which was Sam's Sam's house in Brixton, I went, I went, uh, I went down there in my kind of R and D phase to kind of see see um, what it what it would look like, see whether there's anything to film around there. And <clears throat> I mean, it doesn't exist as it as it was. It's now some kind of very very strange big kind of. <laughs> complex that that it's like looks like something that might be on a moon base or something it's just very strange but i think some of the photos that you guys took um where you're standing in the rubble was that around the time in crochet when it was kind of getting bulldozed yeah yeah Uh, um i think it was the early stages of what of what of what was happening uh some of those houses were being um you know um taken down uh i don't know what the plans were at the time in terms of development but um, certainly in that area where we were rehearsing, there was a lot of um, houses that were being taken down, and that is reflected in those pictures that you that you um, that you refer to. I should say, um, just touching on on the terms Stuart used about the joy in the music, it's important for us to convey the fact that. The fact that we were not getting the success that we wanted in other bands like us and other artists uh, generally or or people who were not getting the sort of access that their talent or their abilities or their skills entitled them to didn't mean that we would run home and sleep under the bed and cry. You know, life goes on. And what you do 
uh, in not being able to go through one door is to go through other doors. So you create a door for yourself. And I think that's how we, as a band, as people, as artists or what have you, have made our our future, built our own futures, ensuring that you could, we could utilize the talents or skills or um, opportunities that we have to do the best we could in the circumstances we found ourselves. Our music was joyous music, and the, the, the black music scene that, at the time was similarly joyous. And I also wanted to, to kind of <laughs> make it uh, clear, if you like, that although 40 years um, separated the doing of the first part of the Samandi project to now, we didn't sit down. We were all engaged in other projects, other things. And I, I, I think it's important to say also, again, Steve and Mike uh, were members of Jibula, which is an important South African band, you know, part of that whole, whole struggle. Um, Sam, as you might know from reading various things about him, had his own career after Samandi and developed a fantastic reputation as a, a, a drummer in his own right, I did other things uh, musically. So we, we, Pablo did other things, things spiritually. Uh, Derek decided to take a bit of a rest, but we weren't. We haven't been rediscovered through being lost in the wilderness for forty years. We've done all sorts of things which we are very proud of having done, and almost as much, almost as proud of doing those things as we are of having done this wonderful project. Uh, called Simande. Awesome. And, and uh, one thing um, I want to, you know, circle back to Tim, I mean, you're talking about some of the history um, and some of the photos that you, you guys had looked at. I mean, the documentary, of course, is pulling from footage and photos from various decades of Simande history. How did you go about finding the story? I'm just kind of curious, did you have a clear idea from the start or did you end up discovering the story when you were sort of sifting through the footage and the editing process? I mean, you always you, you do you do find little elements of story that you didn't know about as you're as you're going through the process. For me, it was mainly interacting with the guys and learning more from them about it. You know, um, actually, there was one element of it that I always remember, which was um, when we 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 wanted to do a trailer for a teaser trailer um, before we got into production, and and so I I decided that we were going to do some filming days with the guys, and then we we're going to cut together a little sizzle reel. Um, but after having done a shoot with five of the six original band members, unfortunately Derek didn't make it, but we had five of the guys and they were all talking through their experiences in music, in life, um, going down some avenues that, that I, I hadn't, hadn't known about. And I, I thought it, it, I needed to pursue, uh, notably the, the black experience in the UK. And I, I actually wrote an email to Patrick and Steve, I think, and said, can you just lay out to me just in writing so, some of the, the kind of the elements that the, especially around the music industry, the kind of mm. like the prejudice that, that, that was, was around at the time, because I felt like I, I needed to learn more before I could say more, if you see what I mean. And it was very important that that came from the horse's mouth. Um, so that was a real, real big thing. And when it comes to, to archive and, and, and still photos and stuff like that, I mean, part of the story of Samande is that there really isn't, there's barely any archive of this band performing in their pomp in the 70s. Um, and that was something that as a director, first thing you do is go, okay, what footage have we got? 
you know, um, and it turned out that basically none. <laughs> and I'm going, but what about some home movies? Did anyone film like rehearsals or anyone filming anything at gigs? No, no, there's nothing. They had, a, they gave me a list of the TV shows that they were on, um, which was mm-hmm. great. But unfortunately, tragically, all of those shows um, uh, don't exist anymore in any form that we could find. Um, and they played a show in the UK that um, I was very excited about. They said they had the tape. I was like, yes, yes, yes. And then they said, actually, no, sorry, it's a different episode. That one's got to be lost. We're never going to find it. Um, there was one in Holland, a similar thing. And so so it, it was slightly different in that because you had to – use archive in a different way so you're not you're not blessed with a a massive amount of archive i mean i saw the beatles doc the get back doc and we're just thinking oh my god imagine having this much material (laughs) you know unbelievable whereas we we what we need to do is tell the story using historical archive that could provide the context um finding as many stills as we could and of course there was there was that one performance the one performance that you guys had Stephen Patrick, Patrick, you gave me that that funny looking tape um, <laughs> that that started a, a whole weird journey to find out where the hell it came from, which ended up in Tasmania. And I don't know if you got long enough for me to tell you this story because it's crazy. Um, but I'll tell it anyway. So yeah, so basically, there's this footage that's, that Patrick gave me a tape when it was the band recording, uh, the band performing two songs um, um, in a club, um, and it was called Black Music Party. And no, obviously, this was 50 years ago, so no one can really remember where it originated from, or who the rights holders might be, or what the heck, where the hell it came from, <laughs> and so. There was mention that it might have been for German TV. So I went and spoke to every single German archive producer, every single German broadcaster, and they were like, nope, never heard of it. And then I ended up going on this week-long detective mission trying to find the people that were in the credits as the executive producers of this show. Um, and I couldn't wow. – the one that they were, they were both – they were British, so that was okay, cool. And the, the company was this company that – I'd never heard of. So I went digging around there. That company folded in 1981. I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't find hide nor hair at either of these guys. And eventually I got really deep into it. And I found that one of them actually, possibly a guy of the same name was quite a man about town in the, in the late sixties. He's a bit of a known mod guy. There was a few photos of him in Soho looking cool. And I'm like, okay. So his name slightly changed to the one that was on the credit. So I started digging around and I found him down. He's now in uh, in uh, Tasmania and he sells fly fishing tackle. That's the kind of element you don't realize you're going to go to all the rabbit holes that you, you find yourself in. And so then I ended up contacting this guy and say, look, you know, the company folded in 81, but you are the, you were the director of the company. Can you, can you give us permission to use it? And he was like, yeah, no worries. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's an element of the, the past, you know, that you, you, you contend with, but then there's also the element of the, uh, the present and in some ways the future about how people are finding out about, uh, about the, uh, the music, how they're engaging with the music, um, uh, tell us about why that portion of the story was important to you and, ha- and why you included it the way you did. 
Well, that's another thing. That at the, around the same time I was hunting that guy down, I was also having to hunt down about 50 people um, around the world who'd uploaded clips of themselves doing all sorts of strange and interesting things with Samande's music to Instagram or YouTube. <clears throat> um, and, of course, I came up with this brilliant idea like half stupid half brilliant brilliant because it was great because we, we were able, you know it gave us a new element stupid because i hadn't realized that or i'd forgot that i'd have to get this stuff cleared so <laughs> we basically right, did this whole sequence of people skateboarding snowboarding doing diy singing along dancing hula hooping i mean you name it people have done it to samando's music <laughs> on instagram it's just mind-blowing but then, of course, I had to actually contact each and every one of these people and said, look, would you like, would you mind that we use this? And they were all like, yes, 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 please. And the brilliant thing was, is they were all over the world. Mm. And it really, it, honestly, I spoke to people in Singapore, Japan, uh, New Zealand, Sweden, Germany, the States, Canada, Australia, I mean, Brazil, Argentina. It was just incredible. And it gave me a real sense that actually, you know, there are, there are this, the fan base is not, it's not really well known but it's global and that was really interesting to me and exciting but um but yes uh, to your point the the way that people imbibe music now is very different and the way people use music now is very different it's 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 very democratic obviously there are issues that that might occur because of it in terms of um you know artists might not get paid what they what they need to get paid or should get paid but someone can can listen to Samande now in a coffee shop and they can Shazam them, you know, and then they go, man, I love that tune. What is it? Boom. And they, or they can go on a YouTube hunt or the algorithm takes them and they find Samande's music. So, you know, in the, in the days where I first found Samande, which was, you know, uh, a long time ago in the 90s, it, you know, you had to hunt. You had to really, really search for it. But now the the music can find you in a, in a, in many different ways, which which I think is great moving forward for for this for this story and this band in particular because it, it's the finding and the sharing which is, becomes a really important thing in in the Samande story because there's so many different tales of how people found them, people's own personal testimonies about how they found them, and then someone else is like, yeah, I did the same thing, you know, and me when I'm interviewing all these people. And we're all, you know, I spend lots of time where we're just sharing our own stories about how we found Samande. And there's something quite beautiful about that. It's kind of like an oral history in a way, you know, it's passing, passing the story on, you know. But thinking about this story about the, the documentary for Stephen Patrick, what is it like? What was it like to watch the documentary for the first time? What feelings did you have as you were watching it? It was emotional, actually. I think that's the, that's what I... That's what it was. It, for me personally, it was quite emotional. It's lovely to it was lovely to see, not just our story being told, but to see the individual stories. You know, one of the nicer things, nicest things about the documentary is the way Tim dealt with Pablo's story. You would have noticed um, also that there's a dedication to Pablo at the end of that thing. That that was touching, and I, you know, Tim needs a lot of credit for that degree of sensitivity in the making of that documentary. It's wonderful. For, for me, I think it, it, I didn't have a, maybe I didn't have a, a full appreciation of how, of the mark that was made by the band. 
I'm aware of the, you know, the successes we had in the States and so on and, and in, in, in France um, with MC Solar. And, but I wasn't aware of the impact uh, that the band and the music had in that, con- in that wider, wider context. So for me, it was very um, educative. You know, I really um, became aware and more appreciative of what it is that we, we, we did in the 70s and, uh, and why the music for people and the band, for, you know, for people listening to it now is so important. Uh, yeah, so from, for, for, from my perspective, uh, yes, the emotional side of it, I, 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 I agree with that, but I think the, the major impact of it for me, the first, the first showing of it was the appreciation of how important and the wider context of the importance of of Simande. Well, following following up on that, you know, one of the the to one piece that Tim obviously put some time in pointing out is that um, for music listeners uh, now, um, folks like myself in particular, we've got the entire almost the entire catalog of music history at our fingertips. And I would want to know what's it like for you as musicians about uh, the fact that people are perpetually finding this and coming across it as for them completely new music when for you it's music of, you know, uh, of your youth, you know, music from 50 years ago. What, what is it like to know that there are people possibly every day discovering and enjoying your music completely anew? So that's that's for, for me. I mean, that's 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 really really fantastic. But I, I kind of understand that. I, I, I kind of understand the the discovery element of it, because uh, both with our first band meter and which which evolved into Simande, we always had, you know, the aim of doing original music. That was always the the aim, and I think the the. The elements, the, all the different elements that we brought into the music that made it what it was, something very difficult, very different to what was happening generally. I think there's always things, when you listen to the music over and over, there are always things that's being discovered about the music. Even for me as a person, you know, uh, who have written uh, a lot of it, when I listen to some of the stuff, even from the first album, and I'm listening to it again, I'm hearing new elements um, mm. uh, in the music, you know, that was not apparent to me before. Because when you when you're performing and you're performing to record, you're not necessarily um, wearing the hat of the of of a listener. So when I wear the hat of the listener, and I I really and so you know the other thing is you, you don't <laughs> I don't know for Patrick, but for me I I I I, I didn't listen. So much of the stuff when we recorded them because when you record it you put it there you don't really want to go back because as musicians you they're always going to be little errors little mistakes and little things that people may not be aware of but you as a person who's putting it down you are aware of it so that always used to deter me from going back and listening because i know where i've made my errors and i'm always grateful for them. <laughs> I, know, I, don't, I rarely read an issue of our magazine after we put it out. That's it. <laughs> exactly. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing with us. But uh, with this new discovery of the music and sort of being forced to listen to it again, 
it's made me more appreciative um, uh, of, 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 of the music. And I can, coming back to your point about the discovery, I can kind of understand uh, why there are the, the, the different things being discovered about the music now when people listening to it, listen to it. And it hasn't been pigeonholed. It's very difficult to pigeonhole it because of, of all those different characteristics uh, hmm. of, of the music. One of the wonderful things about uh, the internet is that it's, the, it's democratized the whole thing, the whole industry. Everybody has access to everything, which is wonderful because music is universal. And it takes me to the point of, of being able to say, you know, two people shouldn't sit in a house and decide this, these people will listen to, to this, only this. Because this is what we think they want to hear. And this is how the music industry in the United Kingdom seems to me to have worked. Well, it might not be two people, it might be three. But, you know, that, that approach prevented a lot of fantastic music from being generally exposed or widely exposed and a lot of opportunity for the music-loving public, not even the music-buying public, but the music-loving public to have access to stuff that they might have loved had they been able to hear it. Yeah, so it's great. The discovery is great. It doesn't matter how it happens, and it is happening now, and we're very, very pleased about that, but it also enables us to reflect on what has caused the, you know, the... The, the the music of great quality, not just Simandes, others, great quality, not having the sort of exposure that it deserves. So, Tim, his crew, us, the audience, those people who have loved it and, and regenerated Simandes music through their love of it in three different eras, uh, all deserve credit for, you know, what has happened to to this music now, and what is that? Well, it's, but it's the music that, that that it's all about fundamentally. You know, it's because the music was so good that it 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 withstood um, the the you know the the gatekeepers, shall we say, that that denied it the platform that it should have had, and uh, and not just within the record business, but also in the in TV and in radio and, and all the all these areas are important um, to mm -hmm. get yourself to get yourself heard. It withstood that. It went on its own journey. People found it. People loved it. People told mm. their friends about it. People shared it. And it, and it became, you know, it defied the kind of conventions uh, yeah. of, of marketing and of, of, of PR. It just stood up on its own. And that's just what's so important to me about it and why it means so much, I think. Well, Tim, that speaks to your quality, uh, uh, quality or skill as a filmmaker, especially when uh, your Pete's towards the end, including uh, Pablo's walk off the stage, talking about the people will decide, uh, which chokes you up. I mean, I've watched now; I've watched it twice, and each time I hit that point, it just you know it kind of stops you cold. But uh, I, certainly echoes, or I guess we we say we echo his sentiments in 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 those words. You know, one thing just about Discovery um, that's really exciting uh, about this year's film festival and um, us playing, getting it back at the festival, uh, Dead Center is so excited to be featuring your song, Bra, as the song that's going to play with the bumper in front of every single film at this year's festival. So anyone who sees a Dead wow. Center film, they're going to hear your music. They're going to hear Bra play. Yes. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks to that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're like me, it means I'm going to hear it about a dozen times over the next weekend at least. <laughs> 
Oh, well, listen. I listen to Bra at least once a day, so you're going to be you're going to be just humming humming down the road or wherever you walk for the next few years, just just doing that baseline. Stephen Patrick, what would you say to our, our listeners who may be experiencing uh, Samande for the first time at Dead Center via that Bra on the bumper? Well, you know, I give all credit to Ronnie for for Bra. That bass is wicked, and it's it's described it's described by by uh, I can't remember one of the DJs. Wonderfully well in the in the documentary, you know, but that sort of thing. Um, we have a, we have some nice idea at the end of, of of the show while we are dealing with while we're playing the message, which is music is the, is the message, and the message is music. That's really what we've sought to communicate with man is music because music in our lives generally is really important. Just not not just as a profession, but it has. Um, qualities and influences and impacts that we don't always take notice of, but are crucial to us, you know, to us all, each, each one of us. And it's wonderful to be a part of something that has been so influential in various ways and um, inspirational for various people. I hope all you people who will, look at, who will be looking at the documentary will get the opportunity at some time to see Simande performing live. Yeah, amen. amen. That sounds that. excellent. Love that. Um, well, we are uh, about out of time. It's been so much uh, fun and, and so um, just insightful having the, the opportunity to speak with you know each and every one of you. Um, Stuart, I'll actually give you the final word on this. Is there anything you'd like to say regarding uh, Samande before we close out? Oh, man. Uh, as, a, as someone who's nearly at this point a, a, a lifelong fan, uh, I'd urge everyone uh, – I specifically appreciate Saturday mornings, uh, putting on the first Monday album Saturday as you start to make breakfast when you wake up. Uh, and then uh, if it's upcoming Saturday, uh, heading out to Dead Center uh, to see uh, to see the doc. Um, and and of course, and maybe most importantly, a big thank you to Mr. Patterson, Mr. Scipio and Tim McKenzie Smith for uh, uh, your music, the documentary, and I'm sharing it with the world. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to discuss this uh, with you all. It's been a pleasure, pleasure to be thank here. You. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure as well. Pleasure for me as well. Great. Thank you very much for giving us this opportunity. Of course. And uh, just one last uh, quick opportunity for each of you. Tim, if you want to kick us off, uh, where can our listeners or viewers, where can they keep up with uh, your work and as well as uh, the film um, you know, outside of Dead Center, uh, getting it back to some Monday story? If they wanted to follow it, where can they follow online? Uh, on Instagram uh, at uh, at Samande Movie and Twitter at Samande Movie, all the info, upcoming festivals, uh, release plans, and all of that stuff, all that good stuff's going to be on our Instagram and Twitter account. Awesome! Uh, thanks very much. And Stuart, how about you? Where can listeners keep up with you and your work online? Oh, uh, online edibleokc.com or on social media at edibleokc. Uh, if you like looking at uh, records, uh, you can always follow me on Instagram at, at Stuart S. Hudson. Um, there's uh, plenty of plenty of records in Oklahoma City, and I'm, I'm trying to dig through them all. So feel free to follow me there. Love to see you. Awesome. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us as a special guest uh, co-host today. Yeah, my, uh, my absolute honor. Thank you all. <laughs> okay.
And uh, listeners, one last final reminder, getting it back, the Samande store will be playing as a public screening on Saturday, June 11th at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time in the Wheeler District here in Oklahoma City. And for all other things Dead Center, you can head on over to deadcenterfilm.org and consider supporting the festival by purchasing a badge or individual ticket for the more than 140 films we have playing at this year's festival. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us. We'll catch you again next time. Looking at fashion life.